need the most, brothers and sisters, is the Word of God. Amen? Is the truth of God. Here, it's not a call of oppression, but it's a call to be like Christ. The older godly women to embrace them and pray with them. Pray for them, but pray with them. It's a joy to be with you. I want to welcome those who are visiting us. Be welcome. I want to invite you, please open your Bibles to Titus. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We have been walking through this book, this beautiful letter of the Apostle Paul to his co-worker Titus, who was left in the Greek island of Crete. And we are here in chapter 2. And for those who are able, would you please stand once again? Out of reverence for, as Jay said, when the word is spoken, God is there. He is revealed and manifested through his word. So Titus chapter 2, let's read verses 1 through 10. Here's the word of the Lord. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sounding faith in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger man to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model, an example of good works. And your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that the opponent be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. You may be seated. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Some Sundays ago, we saw the, in the first century, there was a new movement taking place in the Roman Empire, and especially among the wealthy women, and this movement was, quote, to set the women free from the tyranny of the home, to liberate the wealthy Roman women from their oppressive duties at home. And this new Roman woman was pursuing a new social life at the expense of family and other responsibilities. We saw how Philip Toner, he, he said that this new, this new kind of woman was shocking and scandalous even to the Roman culture. The emergence of this movement was so disturbing to the status quo that Augustus, Caesar, Caesar Augustus, issued legislation against it. Associated with the new paradigm was behavior that gave it the look of an ancient, ancient sexual revolution with wealthy women displaying themselves in permissive clothing and hairstyles and seeking the sexual freedoms normally reserved for men. It has been historically proved that Crete, where Titus is, had embraced this ideology with all the strength that they could. We know that Crete was a very perverted place. Remember how Paul <coughs> labels them as evil beasts lazy gluttons. And they embraced this feminist movement that was taking place. So the words of Paul here in, in Titus 2 would have been tremendous, shocking, and scandalous for the women in the church who had embraced that sexual revolution in Crete. So you can only imagine as Titus is reading this letter to the churches in Crete, some of the women who had just been saved and, and were in church and they had embraced this ideology were very much shocked and 
scandalized by these words. They probably did not like the words that Paul was writing. And similarly, the words of Paul that are actually the words of God in Titus 2 are very offensive for many women in our culture and sadly even in many churches today. Women who have embraced the lies of the feminist ideas. For many women, even in churches, Titus 2, especially verses 3 through 5, belongs to a group of people who have not evolved. It's actually barbaric and outdated. All around us, we are taught that women's greatest contentment and satisfaction will come by being liberated from the home, the family, entering the workforce. Look at Hollywood and the new movies. The change, the heroes are no longer men. The heroines, they have to change now. No longer men, but women. And the picture is the rebellious, the insubordinate. Those are the best women. That's the true woman who finds true joy and contentment. That's the movies all around us. And I want to say that this message that we have been hearing today in our America, American culture, especially you see in so many public schools, have a root that we need to know. I believe this message has its roots in Karl Marx and Frederick Engels with the socialist ideologies in the 1800s. So, in 1848, Marx and Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto with a call for the abolition of the family. Frederick Engels, his ideas became well known with the publication of The, Orange of the, the Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State in 1884. He writes in the in this book, the origin, of the, the origin of the Family, he says, the emancipation of women will only be possible, meaning the women are only going to be free, when women can take part in production on a large social scale. And domestic work no longer claims anything but an insignificant amount of her time. 1840s. For Marx and Engels, monogamy, the marriage of one man and one woman, childbearing, working hard inside the home, were oppressive tools of capitalism. And they saw the covenant between one man and one woman as something threatening to, the, to their ideologies, the states. Especially Engels endorsed free love the liberation of the women from the homes into the workforce. And after having a baby, the woman is supposed to leave her baby in the hands of the state. The state is the one who can take care of the children. Free sexual intercourse was not a problem because the children would belong to whom? To the state. For Angles, the patriarchal family is the husband as the head, the male as the breadwinner and economically, depe uh, the econo economically dependent wife was the fruit of capitalism. And Engels believed that this gender oppression where women stayed at home could only be eradicated by ending all societal classes. That's the ideology behind socialism and communism. In the 1920s, Anatoly Lunacharsky, following the ideas of Engels, he said, our problem now is to do away with the household and to free women from the care of children. That's the ideology. Why? The state will take care of them. The solution was the state. The ultimate, the ultimate submission of a wife was not to the Lord Jesus and to her husband, but to the state. So I agree with Kimberly Ells when she writes that the tremors of these ideas still reverberate through society today. And these ideas in the 1800s, you think about Betty Friedan, 
in the 1960s, buying those ideas that if you dance, you argue that prioritizing the home is not enough to keep an intelligent, able woman from the claws of gloom, depression, and even suicide. And that's, as we saw last Sunday, Friedan likens the family home as a comfortable concentration camp. That's the idea. So all these lies, we can think about all these lies about the identity of the woman, what a woman is supposed to be, what God made a woman to be, all these lies, you can think, oh, that goes back to the 60s. Oh, that goes back to the 1800s. Oh, that goes back to the first century with the new Roman. No, you've got to go back farther in time. It goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Amen? That's when Eve bought the lie. You think about the Garden of Eden, Satan deceiving Eve into buy the lie of who should be outside God's will. Even Eve had been created by God to be Adam's helper. She was brought by God to Adam. Adam, as they had named her. She had been made to live joyfully under Adam's headship. And yet, you think about what the Bible says, is that she took the fruit, she gave the fruit, she ate the fruit. We could talk about Adam's uh, failure, of course, right? As the head, as the king, priest, prophet, he should have been the one who stepped in front of Eve and crushed the unclean serpent right there. And she, as a prophet, he should have spoken the word of God to her. And, and he takes the blame. In Romans chapter 5, he is the one to be blamed. But you also see how Eve bought into the lies of Satan. So what we need the most, brothers and sisters, is the word of God, amen? Is the truth of God. So, with that in mind, let's move on to Titus. And today we come to the last sermon dealing with the women here. And I know that some women are glad. Next Lord's Day we move to the men again. And I know that some of you will be frustrated because there is only one little sentence for the young men. But we are going to talk about that like next Lord's Day. And as we are dealing with this hard passage, you see I talk about women being working hard at home, submissive. I remember reading an article by, by King Cash Tate, very good, the, the Desiring God website. And sisters, I think that's a very good instruction that she has for you. Tate writes, when we, we encounter hot-button issues in biblical womanhood, we do so armed with our own experiences and opinions. These issues are central to our, uh, to our identity as women and stir convictions that are deeply entrenched. Almost instinctively, we rise to defend them. But in Christ, we have a higher call to elevate the Lord and his word above all. Humility bows down to the word of God. And then she says, humility recognizes that the world and the God of this world cloud our views. Rather than defending our personal convictions, we are called to inspect them in the light of the truth. In humility, we pray to understand the truth, not to fit our sensibilities, but in the way that God intended when he revealed it. We ask the Lord to strip us of any convictions that are not of him. And when we humble ourselves, we are not clothed in womanhood, but we are clothed in Christ. Amen? Let this be true for all of us, and especially for the women as we deal with these hard subjects. Remember, you need to be clothed not with womanhood, but with Christ, first of all. Amen? So, here we are, verses 4 and 5. We are looking at what, he, what he, a healthy well-organized church looks like. 
Paul left Titus in Crete to organize the church. Part of organizing the church was to teach the different groups in the church how they're supposed to behave, to have an orderly, a beautiful church. So Paul here is painting the picture of what a, a, a beautiful godly woman looks like, an older godly woman, and then a younger godly woman looks like. And we saw, let's move fast here, we saw that the first thing is that the, the younger, younger godly women, they must be what? Learners. Right? The only way for the older women to come across and teach the younger ones is if the younger ones are open to be taught. Not only that, we saw that the younger women, they must be lovers. They need to be taught how to love their husbands and their children. Because of sin, we are prone to love in a different way that God demands our love. Also, we saw that the women must be lovely, lovely. How they behave will be attractive, will be beautiful. And Paul emphasized self-control and purity. We saw that last Sunday. And then we stop where Paul tells the, that the younger women, they must be laborers. They must work hard. And Paul here puts these two words, to work in the home. Painting the picture, the, the godly woman... The center, the center of her affections, the center of her efforts, the center of her energy will be what? The home. Making her home a little embassy of heaven. The man that this woman is constantly thinking about is not her boss at work, but her husband. The people that she's constantly thinking about it's not the co-workers at the workplace, but her children, her husband, the church family. So we saw that it's important to every woman never, never seek to find their identity either at a work, a career, or the family. As we just read, Christ. You must be clothed with Christ. Your identity must be in Christ. Amen? So continue here. Paul, that's where we stop. Paul says that the older women are supposed to come alongside the younger ones and train them to work hard at home. And then he says, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working hard at home. And then he adds kind. And I believe what Paul is saying is that one of the ways that these godly women will show the beauty of the gospel is by working hard at home and being kind as they're working hard within the family. It's very tempting for the wives and mothers to grow weary of the hard labor of managing well the house for the glory of Christ. Amen? Isn't that true? Can that be frustrating? The exhaustion from this noble task. Imagine, think about loving those unlovable husbands. Constantly cleaning up the mess of the husband and the kids. Cleaning urine out of the floor. Diapers, throw up. Feeding them. The lack of sleep. That can cause the women to become irritable. Easily annoyed, frustrated, and even mean. Instead of being gracious, they become graceless and grumblers. Some of you here, I know that you have husbands who are difficult to be loved. Not Rachel, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I told you right about that book. <laughs> Sarah Edwards. What is the name of the book? Was, uh, Married to a Difficult Man. And Rachel was reading that book. <laughs> Somebody came home and saw that book. He looked at me like, hmm. I was like, no, she's reading to help other ladies who have <laughs> difficult men at home. But you have husbands who are very difficult to be loved, blockheads. Think about children who often manifest their depravity as little vipers in diapers. Not much appreciation or gratitude is given to the hard work of a mom at home. The temptation is to let anger, frustration, discontentment grow 
And suddenly you are thinking, ah, at least at the workplace they recognize me. I get a raise. There is the praise of men. And the temptation is to start getting bitter and angry with the hard work that God has given you there. So the need is gigantic for the older godly women to come alongside the, the younger ones and pray with them and for them. I honestly get tired of, I'll be praying for you, and you never pray. Just pray right there. They need, they need women to grab their hands and pray right there with them. They need the older godly women to embrace them and pray with them. Pray for them, but pray with them. Very much needed. And how beautiful and gospel attractive is when the wives and mothers grow in kindness and compassion in the midst of the strenuous and heavy labor of working hard at home. How needed the older godly women are in these younger, younger women's lives. And think about lack of kindness on the part of the wives, mothers. We lead the home to an atmosphere of anger, bitterness. Martha Peace writes, her family fears her. Her family fears what kind of mood she will be in. And you don't want that. And you don't need that. Because you have Christ. Christ has come to you. The grace of God has appeared to you. The Holy Spirit is, re the Holy Spirit is ready to empower you to be kind. Virtues. So run to Christ. Run to the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will... He will help you to be kind. Amen? There is no need to grow in bitterness. And honestly, people can feel, people can smell the aroma of kindness in your home. They can either feel and smell the aroma of bitterness, anger, or the aroma of kindness. And let's move on. So that was kindness. There to work hard with kindness. And now they're supposed to work hard with all submission to their own husbands. And I think here the call is to reflect Jesus Christ. Think about the Lord Jesus. How he worked hard. He worked very hard with all kindness. And yet, always as a man incarnate, always in submission to the will of the Father. So the call here is not a call of oppression, but it's a call to be like Christ. Working hard with kindness under the submission of someone who is authority over you. I know that submission can be a very threatening, alarming word, as people say in our days, triggering. The word submission can bring some painful memories of abuse of authority. And yet the Bible is very clear that submission is a vital part of our lives. You cannot live, you cannot live without being submitted to someone. It's part of life, how God has structured things. And according to Ephesians 5.18, submission, submission is not a sign of weakness, but a demonstration of a spirit-filled life. When you're filled with the spirit, you will embrace biblical submission. And I know that sinful man abuses, sinful man abuses all God-given areas of authority, right? Sinful men will abuse the authority that God has given them. Men and women abuse their authority as fathers and mothers. Men abuse their authority as fathers, pastors, kings, governors. Women abuse their authority as mothers. Nevertheless, we still must embrace these God-given structures of authority. We cannot just reject them because of bad experience that we had in life. Sinful people will abuse their God-given positions of authority. But by no means we can let personal experience reject the institutions that God has established. So some of you here have been abused by a husband, by a father, you heard the word submission thrown at you. And my heart goes out to you 
May the Lord work in you. And may the Lord place his hand upon those who abuse their authority over you. But you cannot, just because you had a bad experience with a father, a bad experience with a husband, to now say that God never gave authority to fathers and husbands to be the head of the home. You cannot do that. And suddenly embrace egalitarian movements. We're all equal here in authority. God never did that. The same with church. Leaders can abuse their authority. And it's not because you are abusing a church that suddenly you go and you reject all church. I don't need church. That's not God's institution. No. And the same with marriage. The same with the family. Amen? Think about presidents and governors. How many of them abuse their authority? And you're still living here. You have not moved to a communist place. You're still under Paul, in Ephesians 5, that's a, a call that Paul gives also in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, wives, submit your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And he is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Brothers and sisters, you see, you have Ephesians 5. You have Colossians chapter 3, and you see that this is not a cultural, a cultural request that stops in the first century. No, 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 no. Going back to creation, we see that this is a biblical standard. This is a biblical pattern for all marriages, in all ages, in all cultures. Amen? So if you move to a place Maybe in Africa, where the women are the one in those villages, the head of the family. Are you going to suppose just to accept that? No, the gospel is to transform that village. And they're supposed to understand that the women are not the head of the family. The men, according to God's standards. Amen? So that's very important to, to remember that that's applicable, that's mandatory in all cultures, in all marriages. And you see also, that's not... Husbands, submit your husbands. Wives, submit your wives. It's one man and one woman. And we need to be clear nowadays, because it's so messed up, the mind of people, that they think that it's biblical. No. One man, one woman. The man, the husband. The woman, the wife. It's clear roles here. And Paul tells that the, the wives are to submit. You have the word submit. Hupotasso carries the idea of recognizing structures of authority and coming under the authority. This Greek word was originally a military term to rank under, to place under the command of. And to submit means that you recognize one's place under someone else's authority and that all under the hierarchy of God's structures. And yes, the word was used, first of all, in a military context, but it's tempting for some men to see that and like, yes, I'm the Marine general at home. No. It was originally used in a military context, but you see throughout the Bible, this word is most often used in relation to a covenantal relationship, a relationship in family, a relationship in a household, is used for Jesus as the, the incarnate son to the Father. And the heart of submission is order. Think about that. Why, there's, why, why did God structure society in a way that we, we need to have submission? For order's sake. There must be order. There is a division of labor in order for order to be held. So the calls for the wives to submit is a call to acknowledge the God-given role assigned to the husband and to herself and respect the God-given assigned roles for the husband. Submission on the part of a godly wife is a voluntary act out of love and reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? 
The godly wife longs to obey the Lord by imitating the church, the bride, by submitting, being submissive. That's very contrary to what we see nowadays. Look at what Paul says. That's amazing. He says in Ephesians 5.24 that the wives are to submit, how? In everything to their own husbands. All areas of a wife's life is to be in submission to her husband's headship. And I know that some of you are bothered right now by what I'm saying. But that's what the Bible says. The husband, Paul is saying here, he's the head of the family. And the wife as part, she cannot have a part of her that is out of submission to the head. Otherwise, what we have is convulsion. Right? What is convulsion? It's when your body starts moving in a way that's not connected to the head. So sometimes you see people who have convulsion with the arm. And it's not that he wants. It's this disconnection of the movement to the head. And there can be no such thing in the church or in the family. So sometimes you hear, I'll submit to all areas but to the financial aspect of my husband. You're supposed to submit to all. But we know that every human authority and submission are limited. Amen? Every human authority is limited. Every call to submit to human authorities is limited. Is limited by God's authority. So here's how we can say what submission is not. What biblical submission is not. And I think that will help clarify here. Biblical submission of a wife is not a call for blind obedience. No wife is called to be blind in obedience to the husband. It does not make the husband the boss and the wife the servant. Biblical submission has nothing to do with the husband as being the boss, the Lord, and the wife the servant. No. Jesus is the Savior. The husband is not the Savior. Paul never says that the husband is the savior of the wife. Jesus is. It does not lead, biblical submission does not lead the wife's loss of her identity. How God made her. There should not be. Sometimes you see an unbiblical submission in such a way that the woman loses her character, who she is. It does not mean that the wife loses her voice and decisions are made unilaterally. No, that's not what the Bible says. And it does not set the wife up for emotional, verbal, or physical abuse. That's not what biblical submission implies. Submission in the Bible never speaks of inferiority of worth and value. Think about the Christian church. We all are called a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And yet, within the church, even though we are all priests, God has placed leaders over the church. That doesn't mean that the pastors, elders, are better than the other members. It's positions of authority to have order. The same in the family. Equality of value does not deny or erase the different complementary roles and positions of authority that God has established. That's very important. That's where you get mixed up complementarian and egalitarian. And we need to get that right. So what are the limits of submission to a husband? Here are some basic guidelines for when a wife needs with all kindness say, I embrace my submission to you But here, I need to obey the Lord instead of you. Here are some cases. When what the husband is asking, requiring, violates a clear biblical principle or command. When what the husband is requiring compromises her relationship with Christ and his church. When what he's asking compromises the care, the nurture, and protection of the children. When what the husband is asking enables her husband's sins. That's when she says, I understand, I embrace my submission, 
but I need to obey my Lord because he's over you. Or when this obedience, submission to the husband would subject her to physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. And of course, you've got to be very careful with emotional abuse because nowadays everything is emotional abuse. We need to be very careful with that. So no human authority is absolute. The government has no absolute authority. Fathers don't have absolute authority. Pastors don't have absolute authority as you think about the different jurisdiction of family, state, and church. Christ Jesus is the only one who has absolute authority, demanding always our obe obedience and submission. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say that the wives must obey their husbands. That's interesting. Children are supposed to obey their parents because submission is a matter of the heart. Submission is, first of all, a matter of the heart. And certainly, certainly, obedience manifests, manifests submission. But you cannot equate obedience and submission. It's interesting how Paul tells the children to obey. Why? Because sometimes the children will obey even without submission. Sometimes they need to obey even if their hearts are unwilling to glorify God and submit to the parents' request. Amen? Isn't that true? But he doesn't say that to the wives. He calls for submission, a matter of the heart. If a husband is asking or requiring something that God clearly prohibits, or if the husband is prohibiting something that God ordains, the wife has no obligation to submit to him. In grace, in love, in tender compassion, we have examples throughout the Bible. For example, Daniel, we have Peter and John who, with much kindness, refused to submit to certain types of authority in order to obey the Lord. And then, when you do that, you've got to be willing to accept the consequences, right? When you choose to obey the Lord over someone else, there are consequences. Here are just some examples from pastoral life dealing with this subject. I remember once dealing with a situation where the husband would not allow the wife to be part of a church. Hmm. So this woman who I knew comes to us and says, my husband does not want me to be part of a church. I have seen men saying that she should submit and obey and win her husband by doing that. I have to disagree because there is a clear commandment in the scriptures where you cannot be a Christian apart from a local church. Meaning, you cannot fulfill your Christian life without being involved with God's people. So she will be disobeying her Lord and Master by obeying her husband. And that's where I said, with kindness, love, that's how you're going to show that the gospel is precious by obeying the Lord Jesus in this area. Remember another couple that the wife did not want to have children because she wants to keep her career. She wants to keep all the, the many years studying and getting the career and everything is going well. And the husband wanting her to start having kids. And how do you deal with that as a Christian as you're counseling them? With much grace, with much wisdom, looking at the scriptures, I had to tell her that the clear evidence through the scriptures, what I could tell that the Lord was calling her to do by his revelation, was to be a mother. I said, I cannot find in the scriptures any passage where the Lord is saying that you are supposed to be a dentist and continue your career there. But I see God calling you. You're healthy. You're able to bear children. And the only reason you're refusing to 
is in order to pursue your career. I believe she had to submit to her husband because that was matching the revealed will of God. She didn't. And the marriage did not go well. Another example, wife wants to get a tattoo. I always want to have a tattoo. It's just a small tattoo. Just nobody will see it. And the husband said, I, I don't want you to get a tattoo. But I want you to get a tattoo. We look at the scriptures. I said, I cannot see any passage saying that you shall have a tattoo. <laughs> Submit to his decision. He's the head. And she was very glad that she never got a tattoo afterwards. Years later. Other one. The couple, the husband, wants their wife to keep having children. And, the two, and she had had children already. And she knew she was exhausted. Her body could not handle anymore. And he, she needs to keep having children. Time and time again together, looking at the scriptures. Under the new covenant, brother, I don't see any command for your wife to keep having children harm her body. She has had children. She knows her limitations. She knows her body. He did not like it. I believe he could not force her to keep having children. So we had to come alongside him to, to help. The same goes with clothing. right? Uh, sometimes... A godly husband will see something that you believe to be modest, and in his mind it's not modest. And what do you do? Are you going to pick up a battle with that? Are you going to pick, pick up a fight? I think it's modest. You submit. And that's why it's so good to have other godly, older women in the church for you to talk about. And I'm pretty sure that the godly older women who have been so many, so many battles will say, Daughter, Forget about that. On the other hand, I have seen men asking their wives to dress in a very sensual and sexual way because they saw their wives as a trophy to be displayed. And I said, I don't want to wear that. And she should not submit to his desire. Why? Because it's contradicting the scriptures. In our own marriage, here's one example. When we moved to Brazil, Rachel really wants to have social media to communicate with the people here in America. Right? That's the only way that we can communicate with friends. That's all we hear. Uh, and I asked her, I asked her, I said, I, I don't think it would be wise for us in relation to time. I don't think it would be good for us to have. And to be honest, she did not like it. She did not like. She wants you. Well, she joyfully submitted. And she looks back later. She says, praise the Lord, did not get it. It's our lives, all the going on with our lives, time. So, I have seen situations where the husband was engaged in gross sexual immorality. Others involved with drunkenness, gambling, gambling, and he commanded his wife to submit to him and be part. And part of that submission was to endorse that behavior. It's like, by no means. By no means. I like what Nancy Wilson writes. She says, If a man is acting foolishly, a woman is foolish to go along quietly. Of course, this requires great wisdom. There are times when a godly wife should beseech her husband not to act in a foolish manner. Perhaps he's plotting to create some kind of, st of stink in the church, and then she reminds of Abigail in the, the scriptures. Abigail would not stand for it. A good Christian wife should go to the leaders and ask them how she can be a good church member and a good wife at the same time. She should not simply stand by hoping that her husband will do the right thing, nor should she just accept anything her husband does 
as though he is infallible. No man is infallible. No man is infallible. She says, if a husband is bad-mouthing his elders, his pastor, his friends, a godly woman should refuse to go along. She should speak to him privately first. But if he's not receptive, she should go to the pastors or elders and seek their advice. The same pattern should be followed if a husband is violent, if he's a temper, if he has a temper, if he's cheating on his income taxes, if he's not providing for the household, or if he's being sexually unfaithful in any way. And this is not an exhaustive list. A wife is to be a helper to her husband and not a blind follower, as this sometimes involves going past him to get help. But overall, your life, dear sisters who are married and those who will get married, will be a life of submission. It will be very rare when you're going to say, I cannot come under your submission. It's very rare. And if you have a lifestyle where you're always refusing to submit your husband, it's probably because you have a heart issue. Because think about how often your husband is going to be asking you to disobey the Lord. It's not often. So if you're constantly living a life of lack of submission and you're always giving excuse, it's because of a heart issue that you have. And notice also that Paul calls for, he says, I think that's important, he says, to be submissive. He used the passive form of the verb, to be submissive. Implying that the, the wife is the one submitting herself to her husband. Why is it important? Because the Bible never says that the husband is to bring their wives into submission. Uga, uga, cavemen. You don't see that in the Bible. The Bible never says, husbands, make sure that you subject your wives to your authority. It's always the wives submit your husbands. The primary responsibility falls on the wives to submit themselves. Willing submission is a far cry from slavery, especially when a wife offers it to a godly husband. It's important to know that Paul sees submission not as something that a husband demands from his wife because he's stronger. No, but a posture that women take for themselves out of the humble strength that Jesus gives them. And I love, they say, Dor uh, Doriani and Phillips, they say, contrary to the scoffing of today's culture, feminine submission is not an oppressive imposition by overbearing men, but the design of God from the dawn of creation. Does, this does not mean that a Christian woman treats her husband as the deity, as a God that she, that she knows he's not. It means that she places herself under her husband's authority as an act of worship and devotion to Jesus, who together with his father created men and women and also designed human society. So husbands, you are never called to bring your wives into submission by verbal abuse, by physical abuse, never. We are never called to make our wives submit to us. Never. Now, on the other hand, the wives cannot be waiting for their husband to conform to their standards. I have seen wives saying, oh, when my husband started living like that, then I'll submit to him. No, you're married. You married the fool. <laughs> That's why you need to be careful who you marry with. So you see, I, I, I have seen multiple, oh, I, I'm not submitting to my husband until he starts doing these things and living like that. That's not the, the, the biblical pattern. That's not the biblical parent, pattern. And I tell the, the, the single women, do not lower your standards out of desperation to get married. You want to marry a man of standard, a man who is godly, because even marrying a godly man will be hard to submit, but will be much easier than to a foolish, ungodly man. 
So not only there is the passive, there is also the object of the submission, and it is their own husbands. Paul used the word here, idios, which means belonging or be related to oneself, your own, private property. So Paul is saying very specific that the married women are to be submissive to their own husbands. Why is it important? Because I have seen some mess up men who think that every woman should submit to him just because he's a man. That's ridiculous. Amen? Can I get an amen? amen. It's like, that's mess up. Treats all the, the women as if you were their wives. And I feel bad for their wives because of how they treat the women. And they see young girls in church and they, they think that they're, they're daughters. Go do that. Go do. Wait a second. That's not how that works. My wife, my daughter, they have no obligation to submit to any other man when it comes to the jurisdiction of the family. Of course, they will submit as citizens to the state, as church members to leadership, but not when it comes to, in a way, the, the man is behaving as a husband, as a father, by no means. Amen? Especially in, in, in societies where they would get married very young. Think about they're very young, they're getting married, then they're moving with their husband, and the husband is living with the family in so many parts of the world, and suddenly the, the father-in-law thinks he is the, the head of the young girl, telling her what to do. It's like, no, that's not how that works. So, look at the final part of verse 5, and Paul here explains why, why the young women are supposed to live like that. Okay, he says, that the word of God may not what? be blasphemed or reviled. It's amazing. It's amazing that the purpose, the reason why the Lord is commanding the women to live like that is not, you'd expect, so that your family will be happy. So that all your desires will be fulfilled. So that you will be the happiest woman in the world. No, the reason, the ultimate reason for all the, the, the Lord is asking is the glory of his name, the sanctification of the church, and the salvation of the lost. More than your wants, more than your feelings, more than your personal dreams, more than what makes you feel happy, what's stake is the glory of the gospel of Christ. And brothers and sisters, the word of God is blasphemed. The word of God is reviled when Christian women behave like the world. When you start behaving like the world, the word of God is indeed blasphemed. When the women in the church cannot be distinguished from the women in our culture, the gospel is being reviled. Amen? So Paul speaks here to blaspheme, blasphemeo. To speak evil. So the world, the world is watching you. The world is watching you. You claim to be a Christian. You claim to be a Christian. You, po you post your Bible verses there in your social media. And then what else are you posting? What else are they seeing in your life? They know that you're a Christian. But they're watching you to see how you live in your home. How you treat your husband and your children. So what takes place inside the home does not remain there. How a woman behaves in the home will either bring glory to God or dishonor to his name. What a beautiful motivation, right? What a beautiful motivation to live a godly life. The glory of God, not blaspheme the word of God. The word of God represents God himself, the gospel. So, brothers and sisters, as we come towards the end of this wonderful section here dealing with the women in the church, I just, just want to remind you, I just want to remind you that this type of relationship between the older and the younger women in the church 
cannot, cannot take place through social media, blogs, and books. What Paul is calling here is the life in the church, where you're walking together, where you see each other, you can touch each other, where you can hug each other and talk to each other. So that's key. And the ultimate purpose of all these commands here is the glory of God. The glory of God. Not what makes you happy, what you want, but how God will be magnified. And let me tell you, the grace of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus is ready to cover you. And some of you here, you are an example. You are a, a a living demonstration of the power of the gospel because you once were in the feminist movement. You once were holding to those ideologies. You were once holding to those satanic lies about women. And the gospel came and transformed you and changed you. And suddenly you are loving your husband. You're loving your kids. You're working hard for the glory of God. You're submitting even to that blockhead guy in your home. And that's the power of the gospel. And for those of you who have been living outside God's will, run to Him. Run to Christ. His arms are wide open to receive you. Brothers and sisters, especially you sisters, you know, you, you come through a passage like that, and it can be so hard to swallow, hard to digest. No. And yet, it's so beautiful. Do you know what we were singing before the preaching? Do you remember what hymn we were singing? Show us Christ. Show us Christ. And you come to a text like that, and you cannot but see Christ, who was perfect in glory, equal in deity, and yet he humbled himself, becoming a man and coming under submission. Submission to the Father's will, even submission to the state who crucified him. And then who are we to think that we are better than Christ in refusing this glorious aspect of a life in him? So, look to Jesus. Amen. Father, we, we thank you so much for your grace and your kindness upon us. Lord, we pray that your word would bear fruit in our lives. As we behold a text like Titus 2 that's so foreign, so alien in this culture, in this society that we live, we pray that your word would take deep roots in our hearts and change us. In all this that you are asking the sisters in Christ is a simple request to be more like Christ. Laying aside the, the glory, laying aside the, the priorities to serve others. Help them, Lord. I pray for these sisters, these loving sisters in Christ that uh, they would see these commands as, a, as the yoke of Christ. That is beautiful. It's not a heavy burden, but gives joy. Because as they obey that, they're becoming more and more like their Savior. And help the men in this church. Help us to encourage, to encourage the women to pursue this life here, Lord. Because our ultimate goal and desire is that your name will be glorified. The last thing that we want is to blaspheme your name. Kill us, destroy us before we blaspheme your name, Lord. We want to bring glory to you. So please help us. In Christ's name, amen.